We paid people more on customer service than we did on financial results. And to do that, you have to believe that, you know, satisfied customers buy more from you, stay with you for longer. And a lot of times, you know, people use the word customer service, but it's just another one of lots of metrics. But we really made it our number one and then changed the incentive structure. And then we used it to drive change. Hi, it's Holly Ransom here. Welcome one and all to Coffee Pods, Fuel Your Difference, a podcast for the change makers and the game changers. This podcast is built around a simple hypothesis. How long does it take to learn from someone's lifetime of experience? Coffee. So in the time it takes us to share a cup of coffee with our guests or for you to enjoy one as you listen along, we're going to tap into the lifetime of experience of some truly remarkable people who've driven significant change. I'm a big believer that success leaves clues. And be it putting an audacious idea into action, shifting a team culture, or even a country's for that matter, or using their influence to drive progress, all our guests have powerful insights, pragmatic tips, and passionate calls to action that can help each of us to fuel the positive difference we're all working to create in our lives, organisations, and communities. Today's guest is David Thody, the Chair of CSIRO and Jobs New South Wales. David was probably best known for his role as Chief Executive Officer and Executive Director of Telstra, where he led an extraordinary transformation throughout Australia's leading telecommunications company. Prior to joining Telstra, David was Chief Executive Officer for IBM across Australia and New Zealand. He's got an honorary doctorate in science from Deakin University and in 2017 was recognised for his service to business and ethical business leadership with an Order of Australia. In this coffee pod, Dave and I discuss at length what it takes to drive large-scale organisational change. How do you keep momentum and get motivation up? How do you effectively communicate your message through your organisation? And ultimately, what does it take to make change stick? Here's David. David Thody, I'm thrilled to have you on Coffee Pods. Thank you so much for making the time available to share your experience and insights. Uh, The first thing that really struck me about you uh, preparing for this uh, interview was that you, I guess, had an unconventional path, many would say, for someone that ended up having um, the business career that you've had in that you started in an anthropology and English degree and then found yourself heading into business. How How did that all begin? Well, that's absolutely right. I did I did a degree in uh, social anthropology in English. Well, it's not quite as uh, unrelated as you might think. I actually was a math science major through school. And then when I went to university, I decided to try the arts. It was sort of in the 70s. But my natural inclination, I've always been a mathematician, you know, more of that science bent. But I thoroughly enjoyed doing a, a Bachelor of Arts. It, I think after so many years of focusing on, on science and maths and STEM subjects, the breadth and the ability to think more laterally, you know, I think was actually a great undergrad degree. Uh, and sometimes I worry that we specialise too early in our mm. careers. Uh, I had a wonderful time and really enjoyed it. When I look at what you've done in business, you know, yeah. IBM and, and Telstra in particular, obviously, one of the things I wanted to understand a bit about your career is that you're probably uh, most famous, I guess, for the incredible transformation that you led at Telstra, you know, turning what was a business that was probably much maligned in the community sort of at the time you stepped into the role into truly a, a, our leading telco. I wanted to understand a little mm. bit about what you'd learned up to that point in your career 
that allowed you to have, or I guess that were key building blocks that you applied in your time at Telstra? Sometimes it's hard to be really specific on what skills and capabilities you specifically bring to a job. But first of all, I think the most important thing for all of us is you've got to believe in what you're doing. And I, as you mentioned, I thought, you know, Telstra was this great Australian company that, you know, was not perfect by any means, but the public perception of it wasn't what was inside the company. So I had this, you know, very strong conviction that I wanted to see Telstra just recognised for what they did, nothing more than that. And I can still remember one of the first management meetings we had where I said, look, my aspiration for us is to be you know, a trusted Australian company. In fact, I said the most trusted Australian company. And so it wasn't about financial outcomes. It was about who we were as an organisation or what we stood for, because I believe that that would cause us to be successful financially and create value for shareholders. So that was my biggest motivation. And I knew that of all the companies in Australia, I mean, there's many great companies, but Telstra touched people every day. And at Mm. times I think it had fallen into this position, well, it felt it couldn't make a difference or, you know, well, that was just the way things were. And, and I really felt that we had to have a, a bigger aspiration for ourselves that every time we touched a customer, even if we failed, that the attitude would be right, well, how do I fix it? How do I make it right? Uh, and knowing that customers are not always reasonable, you know, you treat yeah. them as being always important. Um, and so that was a big driver. And I think that, you know, my, my background at IBM, which had been a very customer-centered company for many years. I hadn't always, you know, I'd lost a bit of it. Uh, drove me. I had this innate belief in technology that could make things better. And then that if you could get your values and that deeper purpose really aligned to what you're doing every day, that the power of that was just amazing. And so... They were the aspirations I brought to the role, knowing that you know we still had to do process re-engineering, we still had to do pricing strategy, we still had to have good product. All those things were important, but there was this deeper, bigger purpose and, and aspiration. And I think that capturing that ability to work with people and, and to give them confidence they could make a difference was really important for a company like Telstra. So that's where we started day one coming into, you know, a huge role, you know, tens of thousands of people in the organisation. And I've heard you say that, you know, the hardest thing the organisation ever did was to go on that journey you just described of becoming more customer-centric. How did you prioritise what you did first in terms of the uh, the critical path to get the result you're after? Firstly, it was a daunting day the first day because you you don't quite know what you don't know at that point. But I did you know, since, you know, within the organisation, been through a lot of change and we were not flavour of the month. I think our staff were probably sitting there saying, well, you know, we've just been through an enormous amount of expenditure and had a you know, a very capable CEO in Soltrio, but women were just being told that the copper network was to be renationalised. So I think the market, the media, the staff, our customers were 
you know, thinking, you know, where's Telstra going to go from here? So it was pretty daunting. There wasn't, I wasn't invited to a lot of luncheons or asked to speak at <laughs> many places. Um, but I think it's at those times when you turn in with a great team of people and say, well, what are we going to stand for? What are we going to do that isn't dependent on what feedback we get tomorrow, but what we believe we want to do? And I think that was really where we started as a team. I mean, obviously, we did the normal things of a 60, 90-day plan and got you know, through all of those normal things you do that you see in the textbooks. But at the end of the day, it was really about getting a senior team aligned to that bigger aspiration we had. And that's not easy um, mm. because we all come with different views and different perspectives and then and, and we're all different people. But getting that senior team really focused and then from there, we really um, – started on this journey of how are we going to behave differently and how are we going to really demonstrate both to our staff but also to our customers that you know the status quo wasn't good enough and we wanted to be something different. And there's a lot of cynicism. I think that was probably the hardest thing to confront because people get tired and they hear a lot of rhetoric and we didn't want to just be more rhetoric or nice slogans. We really wanted to drive the change and and that was really where we started. But to do that, you've got to be very disciplined and you've got to put programs in place. So we started a whole program called, you know, Our Customer Connection. That was, um, you know, as much a cultural change program as, as you alluded to. And I do believe culture is um, the bigger driver of change. You've got to get your strategy right, but mm. our culture and values is really big. And we went through that. We started to have really honest discussions with each other about, you know, what our customers were saying. And then we we created this sort of momentum to say, well, look, we're all in this together and we can make a difference. And that's really where it all began. And that was a, that was very powerful. It wasn't easy. And it took probably two to three years to get through it, but that momentum grew and grew and grew. The other big thing, which you know, I borrowed from others, you know, we changed the way we looked at the customer and even making customer centricity or advocacy our number one target mm. uh, objective was a really big gutsy decision for the board. I mean, we paid people more on customer service than we did on financial results. And to do that, you have to believe that, you know, satisfied customers buy more from you, stay with you for longer. And a lot of times, you know, people use the word customer service, but it's just another one of lots of metrics. But we really made it our number one and then changed the incentive structure. And then we used it to drive change. The bigger message in this is that I hear a lot about transformation and Yes, you know, the world's changing and digitization and volatility, all those things. But, you know, I think that happens all the time. The market's changing all the time. And the big question for organizations is how do you create an organization that doesn't lurch from burning platform or transformation to transformation? I think I lived through three, four transformations inside Telstra. Mm-hmm. And, and you need to create an organization that's sustainable. 
yeah. that is sort of self-regulating. And I suppose people call that the agile organisation today, but it's more than that. It's something that is continually judging itself by the market, not by what you think of yourself. You know, So let the market be the arbiter. And the only way you can do that is by focusing on the customer. Now, it's not just service. It's about finding those unmet needs. You're about an orientation of never, because you never arrive with customers. Customers are mm. that demand. Yeah. And so I think that there's a deeper message here. I don't like personally, I mean, transformation is real, but you don't just transform A to B. It's got to be this continual process of creating an organization that is never going to be at rest and always testing itself. And I think the only way I know how to do that is by having this incredible focus on the customer. And it's got to be deeply seated in every process, every product, every you know, every interaction. That's what allows you to transform and uh, and to continually be. So you don't end up being hit from you know, behind or off, out of left field and being um, disrupted. And that's what we've all got to guard against. You mentioned that sort of when you came into the role, A, you weren't flavour of the month and B, one of the big internal yeah. challenges was that cynicism. And on a two to three year journey, there's many points at which momentum can feel like it's absolutely working against you uh, on large scale change yeah. and transformation. How yeah. did you keep yeah. yourself and your people motivated through that journey? Well, you're absolutely right. And some days you just pull your hair out and you think nothing's working. It just doesn't feel right. And so there's probably two sides to it. One is you just need good old tenacity and resilience. You've just got to stay the course and keep digging and keep going, even when it just doesn't seem right. I mean, I can remember some processes, you know, we had an NPS score of minus 60 and we well, get it up to minus 40. You know, these are shocking numbers. And, and it just stayed there. And no matter what we do, it just wouldn't improve. So I think there's just, you know, good old tough, you know, resilience of staying the course. But of course, you've got to have aspiration and, you know, that you're creating something different. So you've got to keep on pushing the envelope and, and believing in the possible. And I think between tenacity and aspiration is where you need to be. So we would spend a lot of time thinking about you know, how we can change this, change the dynamics, change the rules, as well as just fixing what we've got. And that's how we motivate ourselves. Also, you know, serving customers is a great motivator. So we'd always you know, use that. So we would review our customer NPS data as much as we review our financial data. And that's a really interesting process to go through and then you find these pearls and you can then go work and then you can innovate around that and do it differently and and innovation isn't just about new product innovation it's about innovating and redesigning process about innovating and how you write a letter you've got to get that culture of of not accepting the status quo and being able to move forward and then there becomes this sense of satisfaction that you're moving things forward and, and I think that's how we kept ourselves going but you know some days it was it was not easy and uh, you'd think you'd done all the hard work and you know the results just wouldn't change and uh, 
we were very hard on ourselves. We said, look, at the end of the day, we can work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but if we don't get the results, then that's all that matters at the end of the day. So we were very realistic, very honest with ourselves about, you know, were we really making a difference? And I think that also was uh, a real motivator for us in a way. So that's how we did it. I know you mentioned that people throw the word transformation around a lot. I think probably there's a lot of people that talk about that whole piece on pushing your boundaries too. From a pragmatic Mm. standpoint, how did you actually ensure that became part of, like what did you do from a a habit standpoint for yourself and your people? You know, how were you getting the stimulation and the outside ideas and continually challenging that status quo and and seeing that imbue kind of a a new set of habits for your organisation? Yeah. Well, look, this is a, there's no one answer here because there was multi levels. One is we, we went back and looked at all our values, and um, this is a, probably a, a bit of a trite story, but you know, we changed our values because we, we realized that you know, even though we'd had these sort of normal values of service, trust, respect, that they had lost meaning. And so we went back and we looked at, what our staff were telling us that they you know they'd often be around. Well, you don't give me enough delegation. You know, you, you're too many controls. And so we switched that model and we went to said, look, we're going to change it. We're going to trust each other. Uh, and trust became a really important element about how we worked. And the, but it wasn't just trust. We went back and looked at policies. And, and the problem in large organisations, which is really understandable is you sort of build lots of rules and regulations to control, you know, the 1% of things that go wrong. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, it, look, it's well-intentioned, but you put in, in place, you know, procedures and controls for what might go wrong rather than 99% of the time it goes right. So we, we said, well, we're going to change that. And we changed the expense policy, one like Netflix, where we trusted people on their expenses. Now, I don't know how that worked out, but gee, it was really impactful. Suddenly, people didn't have to get approval to go to travel. They didn't have to get the expense accounts, you know, signed off. But we said, look, if if you ever found untrustworthy with your expenses, then you're fine. So there was sort of built in. We changed the accountability model. We started there. The other part was we pushed the boundaries. We wanted to learn from people. We we went out of our way and invite people to come and talk to us and and uh, listen to how they had done it. And so, you know, it's called sort of a learning organisation, but I'm not sure we articulated that way. We just wanted to be open to new ideas. We put in, you know, process around innovation. How do we find innovation within the organisation? So, we, you know, we were big users of social media internally, and we asked people to give us new ideas. And uh, so we ran both an innovative process and innovative product, you know, processes and, and reviews, and then would fund people to go and give it a go. Uh, so we did that, and then we um, you know, would try you know, our products. We're always thinking out six to 18 months about our product plans, and we, rather than just putting new product to market, we wanted to change the rules of the market and do things differently and so that we're always moving out, you know, moving to a untrod territory. So we put a lot of new innovative products into the market. So it was, it was multifaceted, you know, culture, behaviours, policies, innovative pricing strategies and product. And then, you know, we obviously were 
involved in technology. So we did a lot in the early days around incubators and setting up venture funds. I mean, they were really good at the time. I'm not sure how they're going now, but they helped change the culture and to bring new ideas in. And and, uh, and that was exciting. It sort of made it you know, a bit edgy and uh, we had a lot of fun. With this yeah. transformation journey, what was the toughest lesson that you learned on the way? I, I was, I was probably too optimistic about how quickly we could do it. It, it takes time, and it, it takes some. You've got to go through some pretty tough moments. I, I can remember probably it was in the second year when we missed our. Um, NPS target um, we'd set. And remember, we'd set up a structure that, you know, a lot of the at-risk component of salaries was dependent on one target for the whole company. And it included accountants and, you know, people in treasury and people who didn't confront, you know, face the customer. Everybody was on it. And there was a bonus for people who didn't have an at-risk component. Anyway, we, we missed the target. And I can remember... Yammer, which we used at the time, social media, it just went ballistic. You know, people were saying, oh, yeah, this is unfair. You know, we did a great job and it was those people in engineering who didn't do it or the engineers were blaming the salespeople and the salespeople were blaming someone else. And it was sort of this moment of truth, uh, you know, uh, which is, I still think, a really good term, where, you know, everyone realized that we were in this together. Um, it didn't matter who failed, we missed. And and the only thing that mattered was the voice of the customer. And uh, we were all in this thing together and we missed the target and nobody got their bonus. And it was a it was a pretty lean year, but it really brought it home. And I and I think that was a tough moment, but a really important moment that we meant what we were talking about. And there was um, you know, it was difficult. People didn't get a bonus that year and I was a bit lean and but it was really the right thing to do and yeah it proved uh, so it was, that was wasn't that rhetoric was it. it was the uh the real deal yeah it was a real deal and then I suppose the other one you know the, there's always a group in any company that you know are rightly they say oh you know that CEO will go soon <laughs> and how do you have a, a real conversation with those people. And, and it takes time because they they are rightly at times very cynical. And you've got to respect that because they've seen so much rhetoric over the years. And it took a lot of time to, to get a really genuine conversation going with probably, you know, 25, 30% of the organisation. Good people, really good people, really committed to what they did. But they were... You know, it was, well, you know, your management, we're down in the organisation, which I never liked that term, but we're just trying to get our job done and, you know, you keep making all these bold statements, and but we're not feeling it. And I think that was tough. That took, that took a while to get a real engagement there where people felt that they were listened to, that they were valued, and that they didn't have to be cynical. And I'm not, you know, we didn't. Not everybody changed by any means, but a lot of them said, okay, in the end, you know, let's give this guy, I'm part of this. And, you know, and then that sense of pride of being, pride in the right sense of working for an organisation that 
know, that was willing to stand up for something. That was really, you know, it was hard, harder than I expected, but really gratifying once we started to, you know, see that change happen. I wanted to touch on diversity with you. I know you're one of the original yeah. male champions of change and, again, probably mm-hmm. a hallmark of your time at Telstra was the move towards all roles fully flex. But my understanding yeah. is your first sort of interaction with diversity happened with the, uh, the world-renowned diversity trainer, Jane Elliott, in what you describe as one of the most significant moments in your career. I was wondering if you could take us back to, to what happened and, and what it was that, that, that was so transformational about that experience. Well, it was um, a very public, you know, moment of my career when I realised that I have all these, uh, you know, hidden biases. She was speaking, it was an IBM CEO, and um, just wishing up to speak, she said, David, would you come up on stage? And I said, yeah, I'd be happy to. And I didn't know really the context, but I got up on stage and then she invited a woman up there who was a Torres Strait Islander. And then she asked us, uh, a series of questions that, you know, made me feel more and more smaller and smaller. She said, you know, first she turned to me and said, David, how tall are you? And I said, I'm six foot two, whatever it was. And she turned to, um, I can't remember her name, uh, the lady on it, the lady, and said, yeah, how tall? She said, well, uh, I'm five foot two. And she said, well, how do you feel about that, David? And I said, well, I've never really thought I'm six foot two. That's just what I am. And she turned to... Uh, and she said, you are, I'm five foot two. Yeah, we said, well, I find it really hard. You know, I go into into uh, big rooms and you know, I'm at a, at a cocktail event. I can't see where people are. People don't look me in the eye. And I find it really difficult being five foot two. And that was the first thing. And she you know, went through, uh, you know, various aspects of my physical being. And, and then she said, you know, David, you're a male. How do you feel about being a man? And I said, well, I was just born a man. I'm... I feel very happy to be man, you know, just what I am. And she said to, you know, the same question, so how do you feel about being one? She said, well, actually, I find it really difficult. And I think it just made me realise that how I see the world is so different to the way other people experience it. And I often was not conscious of that in my interactions with people. And then um, the final straw was, as I felt sort of smaller and smaller, I actually, uh, you know, just touched her. And she turned to me and said, you know, um, what gives you the right to touch me? And I said, well, I'm really sorry. I, I didn't mean to offend you. She said, well, that's right. You, you know, that's a, um, you have no right to touch me. So that, that says I wanted to get off the stage. I can bet. <laughs> uh, so, so it just, I think the learning experience for me was, for all of us, is that you never assume with people, you know, your view of life, is not necessarily the norm and it doesn't mean that you stop being who you are but being aware that people's experiences or their way of looking at life or or things that they face can be very different to your own and don't assume anything uh, in that you know stand up what you believe in go and do it but be conscious of other people's views so that was uh you know that was that story um and you know that was in front of I think 4,000 people. Wow. Story. <laughs> yeah. So, so how, anyway. did, how did that change the way that you led? Well, I, th- I think that it just made me more aware of my inherent biases and my experiences of life. And just to be aware of it, I can't change that. But it made me more aware. But look, my commitment to equality 
i.e. which is diversity, but to treat people equally and, and to have the very best people around. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a business person and I just I want the best people and that is not, you know, white, male, Anglo-Saxon, 45-year-olds or whatever it was at the time. You know, that's not, not all the capabilities. So you need a diversity of people and you need different views brought to the table to get to the truth because you want the truth, not the – you don't want everyone jumping on the same barrel reinforcing each other. You want diversity of thinking. You want different ways. And that's, you know, that's why I'm committed to diversity because you get a better outcome and there's this great sense of, you know, equality and treating people fairly and – not people being disadvantaged, uh, and that's a very big driver for me. So, yeah, that experience has helped me be more aware of my inherent failures and biases. So, um, yeah, and it was, um, I think that was one. And also, I mean, I've always felt that leadership is about creating environments for others to be successful. Uh, it is, it is, it is, you know, yeah, we hear lots of work about teamwork, but you know, no one individual can do everything. You need groups of people that come together that are united with a common objective cause, and and ever all of us bring different skills to that, and and that's what you want to create and create an environment where people can do better than they think they can do, and that's what great leadership is about. That it's creating self belief and an ability that people say, gee, I can do that. That's what creates great organisations. I've wanted to ask a couple of quick questions before we close. Um, The first I wanted to ask was really around, for those people who are embarking on, I guess, a similar journey of transformation and change, what's the best bit of advice that you've got for them as to the the first step they should take to ready themselves or to Mm -hmm. enable them to start most effectively on that journey? Well, I, I think the most important thing is to clearly understand, you know, the reasons for the change, be able to articulate it, and what you're going to create at the end. Because what where you're going to, what is that aspiration that is the motivator? Because I think we all see, you know, yes, digital enablement, digital disruptions happening and Yes, it's more competitive in the market and all those things. And they're all around. Yes, we need to take cost out and make sure that transformation isn't just another word for cost out. You've got to understand what you're creating, what that purpose, what that driver is that people can relate to and then see the potential prize. Because transformation for transformation's sake means absolutely nothing. You've got to be able to move You've got to really believe in that bigger outcome that you're trying to achieve. And then you've got to, uh, you know, a lot of it is blocking and tackling and and doing hard work. This is not easy. And it isn't all about pretty words and the art articulate. Sometimes it's just rolling your sleeves up, getting down, being absolutely uncompromising in your honesty about you know, what's working and what's not, and creating an environment that is just not good news, but really confronting the bad stuff. What doesn't work? We all have it in our own lives and businesses and just being absolutely ruthlessly honest. And uh, then you start to get changed and people stare into it and uh, and then you can create something unique. So that would be my my biggest counsel for, for anyone starting on a, a new journey. 
And finally, for those who are listening today, what's the call to action you'd like to leave them with? Oh, look, at the call to action. Um, you know, maybe I was going to say believe in the impossible. Uh, look, I, I, I am in, incredibly inspired by what groups of people can achieve. Uh, I mean, and I think having that belief in what, you know, I mean, organisations are nothing more than people. Ideas, you know, aligning, doing things. And, um, you know, there is this great sense in which what you're willing to believe becomes a reality. And you've got to give it a go. I mean, you know, if it's just going through the motions or you're just doing it to create a better bottom line, it's more, life's more than that. Business is more than that. And to create that sustainable you know, organisation that moves forward is incredibly satisfying. And I would encourage people to believe that and give it a go. And that's not being, you don't have to have your head in the clouds. It's just about making a difference. And, uh, and so find out what that is and then go do it. That would be my call to action. David, thank you so much for making the time uh, to talk with us today and for sharing so freely of your own experience. It's inspiring to hear what you've done at Telstra. I, I feel grateful for the fact you're now in the roles that you're in uh, at CSIRO and in, in other major institutions around our country leading change. Uh, and I really appreciate you making the time to, to speak with us today. My pleasure. And uh, there's so many great people in this country that I'm, I'm continually inspired by the people I meet and, and thank you for the opportunity to talk to you and what you're doing. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback by tweeting me at Holly Ransom or leave a review for the podcast. To cater to coffee length breaks, we've reduced the length of this podcast, but you can listen to this conversation in full and sign up to receive our free fortnightly updates packed with info and ideas by visiting www.coffeepodswithholly.com. So for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.